0: Oh, well, we had another big rally today in the stock market. The Dow is up 527 points. In fact, we're now back above 26,000 uh, for the Dow, 26,260 some odd points for the Dow. But all of the major stock market indexes were positive today. Uh, big gains. In fact, the S&P 500 is now only down about three and a half percent, I think, so far this year. The Nasdaq is actually up almost eight percent on the year. I mean, think about that. I mean, if anybody had told you, like, at the end of last year, what was going to happen this year, and you were going to guess, you know, where the stock market might be at this particular point in time, not many people would think, well, the S&P will barely be down. The NASDAQ will will be having a good year. I mean, think about what has happened in this year, because when 2019 ended, right, everybody was very optimistic. I mean, the economy was booming. We had a great trade deal with China. Uh, Trump's going to get reelected. A recession is nowhere in sight, right? The market was at record highs. Unemployment was at record lows, right? Everybody was very, very optimistic. And then if somebody came to you and said, you know, hey, I just was in a time machine, right? And they were going to tell you that by the beginning of of June, this is what will have transpired. Number one, we're going to be plunged into the worst uh, recession since the Great Depression. I mean, it's going to be sparked by a global pandemic, right? This disease is going to be infecting people. They're going to be dropping dead, right? They're going to be bodies are going to be piling up, right? Countries are going to shut down. People are going to be quarantined and Isolating at home, and the government's going to be ordering businesses to close down. And so, as a result, we're going to have like 20% of the population is going to be unemployed, right? The economy is going to be collapsing. I think the Atlanta Fed now thinks Q2 GDP is going to fall by better than 50%. 50%, right? Of course, it's annualized, but still, I mean, that is an unheard of number. Uh, the most recent quarter. So GDP is going to implode. All the economic numbers are just going to collapse. People aren't going to be going to restaurants. They're not going to be traveling, right? Air travel is now at 95% or more than that, right? There's all these government bailouts, all these stimulus programs. If you knew all that, oh, and by the way, there's going to be major riots and looting in just about every American city, right? And it's going to go on for a week, who knows, maybe more, right? Right. So all these stores that were shut down have now been ransacked and destroyed and all their inventory has been looted and they've been vandalized. Like all this bad stuff is going to happen, right? People protesting and riding in the street and massive unemployment. And the Nasdaq going to be up by 8%. The S&P is barely going to be down off of all-time record highs, extreme multiples. So again, the only reason that the market is rallying is because of the Fed. I mean, people could try to say, well, no, it's the market is anticipating a recovery. This is a lot more than the anticipation of a recovery. This is all about the Fed driving uh, the narrative, driving the market higher. Now, there was some economic data that came out today that I think was a catalyst, although you never know what might've happened uh, without that economic data because the stock market was already strong before we got the data. But we got the ADP employment report, right? Which is the number that we get every Wednesday of the week that we get the non-farm payroll from the government on Friday. And last month, that number was minus 20 million jobs. Actually, 20,236,000 was the exact number. And so the estimate was for about 8.6 million additional job losses in the the month of May. Now, what happened is they revised down the prior month to only 19,557,000, so a decent revision, so not quite as many jobs as we thought, but still 19.5 million is a lot of jobs. But what the market seized on was the big beat because in May, we only lost... jobs. Now, I say only because that's a lot of jobs to lose in one month. But when you're expecting 8.6 million and you only lose 2.7 million, that's a big beat, right? The bar had really been lowered and we were able to, uh, you know, hurdle it, uh, you know, with a better number, meaning a, a lower number, fewer jobs were lost. But first of all, the number to me doesn't even look possible. I mean, how could that be? I mean, we have been losing. 2 to 3 million jobs a week if you look at the weekly unemployment claims. So based on the unemployment claims, you have 8 to 10 million people who have filed for unemployment, new unemployment benefits in the last month. Well, if all these people are getting fired, why aren't they showing up in these numbers? Because these are the numbers of the people who were fired. You can't collect unemployment until you've been fired from your job. So it doesn't make any sense that only 2.8 million people were fired, but 8 to 10 million people went and and claimed unemployment. So there's probably some kind of statistical anomaly in here. I don't know. They're probably going to have to upwardly revise this number uh, next month. But in the meantime, as soon as this number came out, the market really rallied it, right? And gold, which I'll talk about, gold sold off as soon as this number came out. As if, oh, look, the economy is not nearly as bad as we thought. The economy is as bad as they thought. In fact, it's probably worse. But when the number came out, the market rallied on it uh because of, I think, uh, the 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 momentum that has been created by the Fed. I mean, you have stocks that are just going up and it's fueling on itself. And now that it's rising, well, if they can come up with some type of excuse to maintain the momentum. Oh, look, the the economy is not as bad as we thought. Oh, let's buy stocks. But meanwhile, stocks are already overpriced, even if the economy was much better than people thought. Remember, the U.S. stock market was overpriced at the end of 2019, before any of this bad stuff had happened. And now we have all this bad stuff, which is much worse than anybody could have possibly envisioned. And the market is barely down in the case of the S&P 500. And in the case of the NASDAQ, the market is actually higher. Even though it was already expensive and priced for perfection, we got the antithesis of perfection, yet the market went up anyway. Now, it's not just the U.S. stock market that is reacting. The dollar continues to get pounded. Dollar index down again today. We're barely holding on to a 97 handle now. We're at 97.31. But there are some currencies that are actually falling against the dollar, namely the Japanese yen and the Swiss franc. I mean, the Japanese yen was down today, had a bigger drop yesterday. And the Swiss franc was about unchanged today against the dollar, but it was down against all the other currencies. And the Swiss franc was down a bit yesterday. So investors are selling the safe haven currencies, and they're buying back the more economically sensitive currencies, commodity linked currencies. And so overall, the dollar is losing value, even if it's gaining marginally against the Japanese yen and the Swiss franc. But another safe haven that really got clobbered today was the U.S. bond market, right? The treasury market got clobbered. Now, the yield on the 30-year, uh, for some reason, my, um, my program's not working. Every time I try to type in a quote, I'm getting nothing. So I, I can't pull it up. But I know that the yield on the 30-year closed above uh, 1.5%. And to me, it looks like we could be making a beeline up for 2% uh, yield on the 30-year, which you know still sounds very, very low in historical terms, but it's not that low when not that long ago, the yield on the 30-year was sub 1%, right? We had a zero handle on that yield. And remember, the Federal Reserve bought a lot of U.S. Treasuries when the yields were under 1%. In fact, one of the reasons uh, that the market went up was because of all the money the Federal Reserve printed to buy up all those treasuries. So what's happened now, what is happening to the Fed is as interest rates are rising, the Fed is losing money because they have a lot of interest rate risk because they bought all of these long-dated, low-yielding treasuries. And now as treasury rates rise, the value of their balance sheet, the assets on their balance sheet is coming down. Meaning if the Fed had to shrink the balance sheet, If it had to sell some of those 10-year Treasuries or 30-year Treasuries, instead of holding them for 30 years and waiting for them to mature, if the Fed had to sell them into the market now, the Fed would not receive back as many dollars as it paid to buy the Treasury. So the Fed would have a real loss on its balance sheet, which, by the way, the U.S. taxpayer is technically on the hook for because we passed a law, I think, after the last financial crisis that said that any money... That the Federal Reserve loses through its open market operations is now a liability of the U.S. government to the Fed. See, when the Fed makes a profit, it pays that profit to the U.S. Treasury if it exceeds a certain number. But now if the Fed starts losing money, which it would do if it had to sell its treasuries at a loss, well, now the U.S. government is going to have to write a check to the Federal Reserve, right? Now, right now, the U.S. government gets the money from the Federal Reserve. So obviously, it can't pay the Federal Reserve with the Federal Reserve's own money. So that money is going to have to come from the U.S. taxpayers. So we are on the hook for big losses in the balance sheet. But all these safe havens were going down. U.S. Treasuries were going down. Swiss franc was going down. uh, Japanese yen was going down. And that's why I think gold went down. And in fact, silver went down as well as gold. Today gold was down almost 30 bucks. We actually settled just below 1700, I think 1698 and change. Silver was down about 44 cents, uh 1766, and silver was down and gold was down yesterday as well, not as much as today, and the mining stocks had another uh decent down day following uh, the metals lower. And I think the idea is or the reason is it's a safe haven, right? So If everybody is getting more optimistic on the rebound, on the reopening, even though there's no real reason that they should be more optimistic. Uh, And again, I think it's just the rise in the market itself that is creating the optimism. I mean, people are thinking that the market is rising because people are optimistic about the recovery. I think people are optimistic about the recovery because the market is rising. And the market is not rising because of the recovery. The market is rising because of the Fed, because of all the money the Fed Is printing. And even though a lot of people don't think printing money doesn't matter, printing money matters a lot. And people are about to find out the hard way just how much it really matters. And they're going to find out that there is a big difference between gold and US treasuries and between gold even and the Swiss franc or the Japanese yen. Because people aren't buying gold, at least the people who understand the gold market, people are not buying gold. To hedge the stock market because i think that's one of the other reasons that the safe havens were selling off is this rally in the stock market it's not just the idea that the economy is better than people thought it's that the stock market is stronger than people thought and so there were people who wanted out of stocks and they had to put their money someplace so they put it into bonds or they put it into the japanese yen or they put it into gold And so now if they want to get back into stocks because they think the worst is over and now they're missing out on this big rally. And again, that's what bear market rallies do. They sucker you in. They get you to think you're missing out on a new bull market. And just when they get everybody loaded on board is when the bottom drops out. But gold is not really a safe haven for a stock portfolio. You're not buying gold to uh, hedge your stock portfolio. That's not the reason. I mean, some people might be buying it for that reason, but that's not the main reason. People should be buying gold, and I'm sure many are, to hedge their currency, whether they live in the dollar and they have euro, I mean, dollars, or they live in Europe and they have euros, or they live in Japan and they have Japanese yen. Central banks are creating tremendous inflation. And central banks have told everybody that we are intentionally destroying the value of our money, right? That is our goal. We want prices to go up more. We want more inflation. We want the dollars or the euros or the yen that you're keeping in the bank or in your mattress somewhere. We want them to lose value. The longer you hold on to them, the more value they are going to lose. This is on purpose. This is by design. So once the central banks have told you that that's the plan, you would be a fool to cooperate, right? What you should do is get rid of your dollars and get rid of your euros, right? Now you can use them to buy socks if you want, but what if you don't want to do that? What if you wanted to save? You didn't want to invest in the stock market. You didn't want to invest in the real estate market. You just want to be liquid. You want to save. Well, now you save in gold instead of saving in dollars or euros or some fiat currencies that are being debased. So gold is a hedge Against central banks creating inflation, it's a hedge against debasing currency. That is the opposite of treasuries, right? If you are worried about inflation, the last thing you would do is buy U.S. treasuries, because the inflation destroys the value of dollars, and a treasury is simply an IOU, a promise to pay you dollars in the future. Well, the more inflation there is between now and that maturity date, the more value. The dollars are going to lose between the time you loan them to the government and the time they pay you back. So while maybe you can say treasuries and gold are both hedges against stock market volatility or a weak stock market, they're not both hedges against inflation. They're not hedges against central banks printing too much money. So the people that understand what's happening, they are not hedging that risk in treasuries. They are buying gold. Right. And The reason that the U.S. stock market is going up, the reason that the economy is in even in worse shape is because of all the money printing, is because of all the inflation. So rather than selling gold, right, because the stock market is rising, oh, time to sell gold, investors need to understand why the stock market is rising. It's rising because the Fed is printing all this money, because the Fed is creating inflation and debasing the value of currency. That is going to drive the value of gold. Gold becomes more valuable because of what the government is doing to prop up the stock market and prop up the economy. So a strong stock market is not a sell signal for gold. And it's certainly not a sell signal for gold stocks because gold stocks are going to be more profitable as the gold price moves higher and higher in response to all of the inflation that's being created, which is why the sell-off that we had in the last couple of days in uh, gold and in gold stocks is just a buying opportunity. Now, of course, I'm not all in gold stocks. I have a lot of non-gold stocks that have gone up a lot. In fact, the foreign stocks have been much stronger than the domestic stock market the last couple of days. I mean, there are a lot of stocks that I own that have gone up 5 10 15% in the last couple of days. These are non-gold stocks. And then you can add to that the gains from foreign exchange because a lot of these stocks are not only going up, but so are the foreign currencies that they're priced in. They're going up too. So while we've had a rally in the U.S. stock market the past couple of days, the rally we've had in foreign stocks has been much bigger. But the pullback that we've had in uh, gold and gold stocks is another buying opportunity. And by the way, somebody sent me an email, and this is a wise guy likes to kind of you know I guess uh, tease me or. Uh, and, and so I was talking about the gold fund and what a great stock picker Adrian Day is who manages the Europe Pacific Gold Fund. And so this guy emails me and says, hey, you got to fire Adrian Day, right? He's no good. And he shows me, he said, hey, you claim you've got a great track record that you're beating the GDX since your fund was started. Well, look, look at where your fund is today. Look at the price today and look at the price of the fund when you started it and look at the uh, GDX and the GDX has gone, X has gone up more, right? You've underperformed the GDX. So your fund sucks and you should fire Adrian Day, right? This is what this guy emails me. Well, you know, when it comes to evaluating performance, especially mutual funds, but this comes with all stocks, too. You can't just look at the price. You have to consider the total return of that asset over the time period that you're measuring. And, of course, when you're dealing with stocks, there are dividends. Stocks pay dividends. You can't ignore the dividends when you're trying to assess the returns because those dividends are part of your returns. And of course, you could reinvest those dividends if you want to, uh, which can compound those returns. That's part of the beauty of interest and dividends is the fact that you can compound them. So you can't ignore those distributions. And when it comes to mutual funds, there's distributions. And uh, our gold fund every year has made a distribution. Those distributions can either be taken as cash or many of our clients just elect to reinvest those distributions and put the money right back in the fund, right? And, and just continue to let it grow. But anyway, so I sent this guy an email and I pointed out that if you go back to the inception date of my gold fund and you count all the distributions and of course count all the dividends from the GDX because the GDX paid dividends too. So you don't want to ignore that. You want to You want to put the dividends there too, right? We want to compare apples to apples. But when you do that and you look at the total return of the Europe Pacific Gold Fund versus the GDX, since the inception date, we have substantially outperformed the GDX. Uh, So we have justified our fees. Yes, it is more expensive. The cost of being in the Europe Pacific Gold Fund is higher than the cost of just buying the GDX. But had you bought the Europe Pacific Gold Fund on the day that I started it over five years ago, as of today, even though you paid higher fees, you have more money, even after accounting for those fees. Now, year to date, the GDX is beating my fund. So that's not the case if you bought the GDX December 31st last year. And if you bought my fund on December 31st today, you're better off in the GDX. But that's a short time period. That's not even six months. We're not making investments for short-term performance. We're making investments for long-term performance. And I believe uh, that Adrian Day over the long-term is going to continue to outperform substantially the GDXJ, and I think this short period of underperformance is actually a buying opportunity because I think we're going to catch up and then once again uh, pass them uh, in the shorter period. But even with the underperformance this year, we're still outperforming since we first started. And again, you know, no guarantees. Just because I think that we're going to continue to outperform doesn't mean that we will. But it's my expectation that we will. And of course, when you make investments, you're having to make an investment based on what you expect, what you think will probably happen, knowing that it might not, trying to assess the risks and probabilities, the upside and downside. But given all the inflation that's being created, eventually investors are going to figure this out. And what I think is ultimately going to happen is it's not going to matter which direction the stock market goes. Right? You're going to see gold and stocks moving up together. Right? You're going to see gold stocks moving up with the stock market. Because the same thing that is driving The stock market higher is what will be driving gold and what is driving gold higher, and that is inflation. Central banks are creating money. The Fed in particular is creating all this money. And because of all this money creation, the S&P 500 is going up. The NASDAQ is going up. But printing money is better fundamentally for gold than it is for the S&P, which means the companies that are going to benefit most from all the money the Fed is printing are going to be the gold mining companies. So eventually the markets will figure that out. But in the short run, you've got these selling opportunities because people don't know and they see the stock market rallying and they think, ah, no reason to own gold, no reason to own gold stocks. And so they sell and there is your opportunity to buy. But also I wanted to uh, spend the rest of this podcast again talking about what has happened in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd uh, and the way uh, the left left has been capitalizing on this tragedy and using this uh, to exploit a false narrative to drive a socialist agenda of bigger government. And the narrative is that Blacks in America are suffering because of widespread systemic racism, right? It's not just racism in the police department, but it's racism all over the country. And what happened uh, to George Floyd is just an example, right? The fact that these racist white cops killed a black guy, right? That was because of racism. And this is just, you know, happening all the time, right? That the cops are out there. It's open season on blacks. Black lives don't matter. You have all this, all these racist cops that are killing black people and that has to stop. But it's not just racist cops. There's racists all over the place, right? And they're in every occupation. And so the reason that we have all these problems in the African-American community. The reason that they don't have as much wealth or they don't have as much opportunity, uh, you know, all of that stems from racism. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. And so the solution then is we need to eradicate racism, and the way we do that is we donate all this money to all these charities or Black Lives Matter, NAACP. We have to give all these uh, uh, entities money a to show that we're not racist and that we support ending racism. So we show that by giving money to charities that are supposedly going to stamp out racism, and we need all government pro more government programs, more spending, bigger welfare state right? And now we have to have more affirmative action. Corporate America has to do more to stamp out racism, right? But all this is false. The racism is not there. I mean, I'm not saying there's no racism. There's always going to be some degree of racism. But the racism that we have today in America is not the reason for all the problems that people are pointing at that are real. These are real problems. I'm not saying that the economic problems that a lot of people are complaining about that African-Americans are experiencing, those problems are real. It's just blaming them on racism. That's the fantasy because racism is not the reason for these problems. In fact, you know, you go back 50 or 100 years, right? A lot of these problems, these economic problems, socioeconomic problems, where you compare uh, blacks with the general population or compare blacks and whites, right? And look at some of these numbers, right? The disparities are actually greater now than they were 50 years ago or a hundred years ago. I mean, if these problems resulted from racism, well, the problems should be fewer. I mean, is anybody going to argue that there is more racism today in America than there was a hundred years ago? That there are more racists in 2020 than there were in 1920? I mean, come on, who would believe that? I don't think anybody believes that. I mean, 1920, right? The Civil War ended in 1865. That means in 1920, somebody who was 55, right, was born the year of the Civil War, which means if I was alive in 1920 at my current age of 57, I would have been born during the Civil War. And it's possible that if I was born white, maybe I was born into a household that had slaves, right? My parents could have been slave owners. If I was black, I might have been born a slave myself right My parents could have grown up as slaves right So how can we be more racist now when we're over a hundred years further than from slavery than back then in fact a lot of this uh, racism when you hear them talk about it, it's the remnants of slavery it's it's left over right from slavery it's because you know there was slavery, that there, there, there's still this this problem that is the that, that that you know has left over from slavery. Well, if that is the case, if the fact that we had slavery in our past, right? If that is the problem, if that's why we have racism today because of slavery in the past, well, wouldn't that leftover racism, that residual racism, wouldn't it have been a bigger problem in 1920 when there were actually people who were alive who remembered slavery, who owned slaves or who were slaves? I mean. Wouldn't the the, the remnants of slavery have a bigger effect, you know, when there were still slaves alive and people that own them, as opposed to now when they're all dead? So, no, it is not racism that is the problem. Is it a problem? Sure, it could be a problem, but it's not the problem. It is not the cause of all these economic problems. And if we're just going to assume that it's racism, right, if we're going to say, oh, racism is why we have all these problems, then the problems are never going to get solved. Right, if we keep trying to eradicate racism, which by the way has, you know, most people aren't racist. We have made tremendous progress in the last 100 years. There is a lot less racism today than there was 100 years ago, and that's a good thing. Could there be less? Sure, there could be less. Is there ever going to be none? Probably not. I don't think we'll ever be able to completely eradicate racism. But it's not creating the economic problem that people think it is. Right. In fact, it's not even the problem with the police. Right. The the the, the narrative now. Right. Is that the uh, the the death of um, George Floyd, right, that this is all racism. Right. That he was he was killed because he was black and he was killed by a racist policeman. And that somehow if George Floyd had been white and all the other circumstances were identical, then somehow uh, the police would have treated uh, Floyd differently as a suspect. They, 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 he, he would not have died, but for the color of his skin. Now, there's no actual evidence that that's the case, right? I mean, there is none. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's possible that that's why this policeman acted the way he did. Maybe he actually was a racist. But you can't jump to that conclusion simply because he's white and 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 George Floyd is black. I mean, that would be racist to just jump to that conclusion without any evidence. But even if that is the case, it's actually the exception, not the rule. There is no statistical evidence that police are disproportionately killing blacks. It's just not there. In fact, there was an article that I read today, op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that actually came up with the statistics, right? And so last year, uh, the most recent year with statistics, 2019, just over a thousand people were killed by the police. Thousand people. Thousand and two, I think, was the number. Twenty-five percent, approximately, of those people were black. Twenty-five percent. Not the majority. Twenty-five percent. So 75 percent of the people that police killed were not black. They were either white or Hispanic or Asian. They were not black. right? Um, and so somebody might say, oh, well, Peter— you know, blacks are 13% of the population, right? So if 25% of the people that police kill are black, well, they must be discriminating, right? Because why isn't it 13%, right? You're, you have twice as many blacks being killed by police as it would be represented by their percentage of the overall population. But you can't look at that, right? What you have to look at is the racial breakdown of the people who are committing crimes, Because it's the people who are committing crimes that are interacting with the police, right? If you just, you know, you never break the law and you just go about your day, chances are you're not running into the police. And if you're not interacting with the police, they don't have the opportunity to kill you, right? So you have to look at who's committing the crimes. And in that same article, the guy brought up the statistics from 2018. He said the 2019 statistics weren't available. The most recent year was 2018. And it turns out, that in 2018, African-Americans committed 53% of the murders in the United States, 53%. And they committed about 60% of the robberies, which actually surprised me. I mean, I knew that it was gonna be out of proportion to their percentage of the population. I was actually surprised that it was that big a number, 60%. Now, this was in the Wall Street Journal. My guess is that the Wall Street Journal fact-checked this article before they published it. So it's probably accurate. 60% of the robberies. Now, my point is that if Blacks are committing such a disproportionate percentage of the crime, well, then if they're 25% of the people who are being killed by police, that is not because of racism of the police, just because they are interacting with a, a much larger percentage of Blacks. In fact, if you look at how much crime blacks are committing, they're actually underrepresented. They're actually being killed in a lower proportion than they're interacting with the police. In fact, another statistic I looked at is that 40% of the police who are killed in the line of duty are killed by somebody who is black, right? And this would, you know, include black police, but 40% of the police are killed by people who are black, but only 25% of the people police kill are black, right? So what does that mean? That means that if you are a policeman and you're killed, you are 60% more likely to have been killed by a black person than you are to have killed a black person. So in reality, it's the police that should be out protesting. Right? they should be saying police lives matter, right? Cause don't they, I mean, after all too, a lot of these police who are getting killed, they're black. I mean, don't their lives matter? Don't the lives of black policemen matter? I mean, what about the retired black policeman, David Dorn? Doesn't his life matter? You know, he was killed. That very, very sad story. My wife was crying about it uh, last night when she heard about it and watched it. But this retired guy looked like a really nice guy. A grandpa was just gunned down in the streets, left to die, bleeding in the streets. You know, it's a very disturbing video. It's up there on YouTube to just watch this guy bleeding out. Right. Uh, but. But you can't see who shot him. But apparently, there was a lot of looting going on. And I think it was an electronic store because there was a guy saying, hey, he was killed over TVs. But apparently, as a retired policeman, he felt the civic responsibility, right, to try to stop a crime from happening. And apparently, you know, he tried to do something to stop the looting. And he got a bullet in his chest as a result, and he died in the street. Now, the irony of this, right, is that the looting was supposedly being done because black lives matter, right? Because a black person was killed by a cop. And so black lives matter. So now there's all these riots. Well, this rioter, one of these rioters decided to take a black life. He killed somebody who was black. Didn't his life matter? I mean, do black lives matter only when it's a policeman who kills him? But if somebody else kills him, it doesn't matter? Or do black lives only matter when a white person is the one that kills somebody who's black, but it doesn't matter at all when a black person kills a black person? Is that is that the idea? Or maybe black lives only matter until one of them tries to stop you from stealing a television set that you want, in which case their life doesn't matter at all. Right. Oh, I want this TV. And if I have to kill a black guy to get it, well, his life doesn't matter because I want that TV. Right. This is what is going on. So the whole idea. Right. That. There's all this rampant racism in the police department. It's just not true. Am I saying there are no racist cops? Of course not. There are racists in every occupation. So I'm sure there are some in the police department, maybe more than in other uh, occupations. And I think we do need to be especially vigilant when it comes to cops because they have the badge, right? They have uh, the right to use force, right? So a racist cop, is inherently a lot more dangerous to society, right? Or if you're black and he's racist against blacks, then let's say, you know, somebody who's maybe a racist florist, right? What's I mean, what's the worst thing a racist florist is gonna do to you, right? Give you a bad floral arrangement? All right, so you go to a different florist, no big deal, right? He can't do the kind of damage. And in fact, if there is a racist florist doing a bad job for blacks, he's only hurting himself because he's gonna lose all his black customers. They're gonna go to somebody else who isn't a racist. Uh, So, yes, I do think that we have to be particularly vigilant uh, when it comes to racism in the police department. Uh, And we have to be particularly vigilant against um, uh, police brutality, especially because the police are the agents of the state and they have power. Right. That's where you have to fear racism. You don't have to fear it in the private sector. You have to fear it in government. Remember, policemen are government officials. Right. So if we have to be worried about racism anywhere, it's from government. Because government has power over us, the free market doesn't have power. Businesses can only earn our business by convincing us to to uh, to patronize them, right? So we don't have to worry about the racist businessman, right? Because the free market is going to take care of that, and I'm going to explain that in a minute. We have to worry about racism in government, institutionalized racism. Um, but anyway, so so the so the first false point is that you see right these these are, racism is rampant in the police force and all these uh, blacks are being killed by white racist cops, right? Which isn't happening. But then once they've established that lie, then they build a whole case of lies on, well, this is just symptomatic of the racism in the entire country, right? And now you have all these CEOs coming on television, sending emails, and this is like supposedly a wake up call now to remind us of just how racist we are, right? and how blacks can't succeed in America because they're the victims of racism, and now we all have to start paying, giving more money to these race-sensitive race charities, and we need all these government programs that are going to do nothing. A, they're probably going to do nothing to diminish racism, which is being diminished on its own, uh, but what they are going to do is actually exacerbate the problems that are being uh, unnecessarily or incorrectly blamed on racism, right? It's the government that is creating uh, the racism. Now, you know, if all these people that are saying, you know, the Black Lives Matter, right? If they really mattered, what could they actually do? I mean, because there are things that could be done that would actually save a lot of Black lives, right? Because I just pointed out that one of the reason that so many Blacks are being killed is because they're breaking laws and they are encountering the police while they are in the process of committing those crimes, right? So if Blacks committed fewer crimes, well, then fewer would be killed by the police, right? One of the reasons that Blacks are so involved in crimes is because of the drug war, because drugs are illegal. And so most of the crime, I think that African-Americans are involved in, and I bet most of the deaths, right? Most of the time where the police end up killing somebody, it's probably related to a drug crime, right? So if we legalize drugs, decriminalize drugs, take the profits out of illegal drugs, we eliminate most of that crime. And then we eliminate most of those deaths. I mean, we solve so many problems by ending the prohibition on on, on drugs. And also a lot of other uh, things that governments do to create black markets where taxes are too high in certain areas, and then you develop a, a black market. And the minute there's a black market, you end up with a profit for a criminal. And now the criminal tries to earn that profit illegally. And of course, now they're going to have encounters with the police because they're breaking the law. So first thing we could do, if you really care, is let's decriminalize drugs, right? But no, that's not even going to come up. No one's going to even talk about all these crimes that are being committed and why so many of them would not be committed if we, if we just uh, legalize drugs. And of course, one of the other reasons that you have corruption in the police department is because of the drug money. I mean, not not all police are corrupt. I think most policemen aren't. But to the extent that there is corruption, a lot of that can be traced to the drug money. That's where it's coming from, right? Or other things that are illegal, like prostitution, victimless crimes. Get rid of that. Legalize prostitution. That'll solve a lot of the problem, too. All of these victimless crimes, whether it's drug use or prostitution, should not be crimes. So that would go a long way in solving a lot of the problem. But also what you have to realize is one of the reasons that so many, uh, you know, young black males uh, and again, those are the ones that are committing the crimes too. It's not elderly uh, black women. It's it's teenage black males or early twenties. They're the ones that are doing all this. Um, But one of the reasons that so many young black men go into drugs and pursue a life of crime and end up potentially getting killed uh, by a policeman or killing a policeman, right? Uh, is because we have made it so difficult for them to take a legitimate path. There are all sorts of government well-intentioned laws and programs that make it harder for people to pull themselves out of poverty the honest way. Right, And so when you shut down all of those avenues, and the only one that's left open is going into illegal drugs, and when the profits are so high, from dealing drugs because they're illegal and you have this big profit, that is a big temptation for a lot of young kids, right? They they see that as their only way out. So what we need to do is show them a better way, show them a different way out of poverty other than drugs. And again, one way is you take away the profits, right? By making them legal. And so they won't have that big temptation, but then you remove the roadblocks to let them go down the other roads, right? And so what I want to talk about right now is some of the things that can be done. Because a lot of people say, hey, Peter, you know, you always want to talk about the problems. Why don't you talk about the solutions? Yeah, I got a lot of solutions, so let's talk about them. All right, so here are the things that we could do, right? All the people that pretend that they care, right? And they want to show how much they care by just donating to these charities that are going to make the situation work. Here are some things that we could actually do, right? in order to uh, improve the economic circumstances of not just African-Americans, but of a lot of people, right? That aren't African-American, right? There's a lot of things that we can do, right? One of the things that we can do is actually eliminate the equal pay for equal work laws, right? As I said earlier, there is some discrimination that goes on. Well, the best way to combat it is to impose an economic penalty on people who discriminate, right? On racists who discriminate based on race, right? You want to have a penalty on them, right? Because the market imposes a penalty on its own, right? Let's say I am a racist. I'm, a, I'm, I'm white and I happen to be bigoted against blacks. I'm, you know, again, I want to focus it on black because this is about black lives matter and all this, but it could be, I could be uh, against women. I could be against Hispanics, homosexuals, whatever, but let's just say my prejudice is just blacks, right? I'm a white guy and I don't like blacks, right? That's, that's, that's my prejudice anyway, but I have a small business and a black guy applies for a job and he's like, oh, he's the best candidate. I mean, he's, he's really, really good, right? He's like so qualified for the job. In fact, he's he's better than any of the white applicants, right? He would do a much better job and I would earn more money if I hired that guy over the next best white guy. Well, I have two choices, right? I can not hire this black guy because I don't like black people, right? I'm a racist. And I can hire somebody who's not as good, the white guy, or, or I can hire the better guy and make more money. So in other words, if I choose to be a racist and not hire the black applicant because I'm a racist, It costs me money. I'm going to make less money because I've hired a guy that's not going to be as good for the job. And, of course, if I don't hire that guy, what if he goes to work for my competitor? My competitor hires him, and now he's out competing me. You see, in a free market, if you have two businesses, one business that's hiring the best people, regardless of their race or gender or sexual orientation, whatever, just the best people for the job that will do the best at making the most money for the employer— And then there's somebody else who's just hiring people that are white because he's just a bigot. Well, that guy is not going to compete. He's going to be less efficient. He's going to have higher prices. And ultimately, he's not going to stay in business. It's the businesses where there is no racism, where even if there's a racist, the racist doesn't allow that attitude to impact his decisions on who he hires and who he fires. Those are the businesses that are going to survive. Those are the businesses that are going to grow their racist businesses are going to die out. So free market capitalism, that's how you combat racism. But there are going to be circumstances, right? Let's say there's two guys. I'm a white guy. I'm a white bigot. And I got two job applicants. One is white. One is black. And they're equally competent, right? They're they're pretty much the same, right? I, I think that they would do the same job, right? Well, I mean, then, I, okay, sure. Now I'll, I'll hire the white guy, right? Because I'm a bigot, right? but they're both equally qualified. I'm going to make the same amount of money regardless. So, okay, I can afford to be a bigot because it's not costing me any money, right? So I'm going to hire the white guy, right? Now, is that bad for the black guy? Yeah, you know, I mean, that's, you know, life isn't fair, stuff like that happens, right? Oh, there's a bigot, the guy didn't get the job. Well, what if the black guy, knowing that the employer could be a bigot, what if he says, you know, I'll work for less money. Maybe you're going to pay the white guy $20 an hour. I'll do the job for eighteen. Now it's a whole different story. Now it costs me $2 an hour to be a racist, right? So am I going to be a racist if I can pay the the, the black guy $18? It's going to cost me $2 an hour to hire the white guy and he's no better. Well, I'm going I'm to take the less expensive option, right? I want to save the money. I'm not going to be a, a bigot if it's going to cost me $2 an hour, right? Uh, I'm going I'm, I'm to buy the, the, the less expensive work. Now, people might say, well, that's not fair well, life isn't fair, right? I mean, and even if, let's say a guy, a black guy, to get his foot in the door, needs to work for less money for for a racist boss, just to prove his worth, right? All right, I'm gonna give you a deal. I'll work for less money. But once you get the job, you get your foot in the door, and now you, you prove to your employer what a good job you're doing. And of course, you learn some more skills on the job, to increase your value, maybe after six months, you go to that racist boss and say, you know what? You got me cheap. But now that you've seen what you bought, I need a raise or I'm quitting, right? And if you're doing a good job and he's already invested in training you and he knows he's underpaying you, he's going to give you a raise. That is just what's going to happen. That is life. But you know what happens is when when you pass a law mandating equal pay for equal work, right? Where you can't, right, you have to pay whites and blacks the same amount of money, then you don't have the opportunity. The black guy doesn't have the opportunity to to, to put himself on sale to overcome racism. In fact, you know where these laws started, the equal pay for equal work laws. It started with the Chinese, like in the 1800s, because people were hiring Chinese and paying them less. So the white people are like, oh, we don't want this. Let's force everybody to pay equal pay for equal work. So people won't hire the Chinese anymore. Because it was, they were getting all these jobs because they were working for less. Because there was some prejudice against the Chinese. But once you had to pay the Chinese the same as the whites, well, they stopped hiring them. You know, there's a, a very good economist by the name of Walter Williams. One of the economists that was very influential on me. And he happens to be African-American, Walter Williams. And he came up with a great analogy. And I still remember it. And I, you know, I read this book. I think it was The State Against Blacks, which is where I read this analogy. Uh, but he used the ama- analogy of comparing steak and chopped meat, right? Hamburger versus steak, right? Most people would rather eat a steak than a hamburger, right? Well, then why doesn't everybody just eat steak? Well, because steak is more expensive than hamburger, right? So if you want to save money, you buy hamburger. If, if you're willing to pay extra, then you buy the steak, Right. So this was his analogy. So don't think it's racist because I'm using an analogy that was created by a black guy, right? So what he said is, well, what if the government passed a law and it said that all meat had to have the same price? You couldn't discriminate. You had to charge the exact same price for steak as hamburger, right? So now you go to the butcher shop and you see a steak for sale and right next to it is a hamburger and they're the same price. Is anyone going to buy the, the hamburger? No, why? It's the same price as the steak. I might as well buy the steak. The only chance the hamburger has of making the sale is to be cheaper. I know you'd rather have a steak, but look, you can eat me and I'm less money, right? That's how you combat racism. Yes, Mr. White Racist. I know you'd rather hire a white guy, but look, you can hire me. I'm a black guy. I'm going I'm to do it for less money. That is the solution. That is how the market will stamp out racism. And again, people say, oh, is it fair? Life isn't fair. People have all sorts of obstacles that they need to overcome. The problem is the government can't eradicate it. The government makes it worse. The government doesn't change the circumstances in favor of blacks. It, it turns the tables. I mean, this is the biggest irony, not just of equal pay for equal work, which now you know takes away the cost of discriminating, right? So it leads to equal pay for equal work means fewer blacks get hired. Not more, it means fewer. But one of the, the worst things that they do is the anti-discrimination laws? Those anti-discrimination laws are the reason that so many employers discriminate for the uh, based on the very characteristics that the laws are intending uh, to protect, right? Because if you're a small business, and it's not as big a deal for a Fortune 500 company, right? They can afford the lawyers, and so you know they they they, they don't have to really use these decisions. But if you're a small employer, and most of the jobs in America are created by small employers, right? That's where most of the jobs come from. And small employers, you know, they don't have a lot of money. They're small, right? And they and the last thing they want to do is end up in court. The last thing they want to do is have legal bills, right? Because, I mean, they could be very high in this day of age. We're very litigious. And so small businessmen, they want to minimize their legal liability, their potential legal costs right now here's what happens with these anti-discrimination laws as I said people in general who are running small businesses don't discriminate based on characteristics that are not related to job performance because they want to hire the best people because even if they are racist their greed trumps their racism they're not going to pay to be a racist if they can do it for free fine but if there's a cost they're, they're stingy too They're racist, but they're greedy. And their greed is stronger than their racism, right? Now, you pass all these laws that make it much easier for certain people to sue their boss, right? Well, the minute you do that, if you make it easier for certain people to sue their employer, you make it less likely that anybody wants to hire them in the first place. Because if you're a boss you know which people are more likely to sue you. And it's not because you're a racist. You know the people that have been granted special privileges when it comes to employment and what you could sue for. So let's say I'm a small business owner and I want to hire somebody, right? What is the safest hire I can make if I want to minimize my litigation? Maybe I hire a 30-year-old straight white guy, right? Because if I hire that guy, The odds of me getting sued are very, very low. What's he going to sue me for? He's not a member of any of the classes. And remember, when you hire somebody, right, it's not just that they may sue you because, you know, you fire them and they claim it's based on a race or you don't promote them. You promote somebody else and they say that's based on race uh, or you're not paying them as much as somebody else and they say it's based on race. It's not just the things that you may do yourself, but you're now responsible for what your other employees do. Right. If you have three employees and one is white and one is black and the white guy somehow offends or harasses the black guy or the black guy claims that he's been offended or harassed, it's not your white employee who gets sued. Right. The worker doesn't sue his coworker. It's the employer. You are responsible for everything that happens. So even if you're you don't have a racist bone in your body, it's possible that one of your employees does and you don't even know it. But again, it doesn't even matter because people are, you know, you're guilty until proven innocent, right? Anybody that you hire can just make it up, can just claim that something happened that was racial. And now you're in court, even though nothing happened, right? So a lot of the lawsuits are frivolous. So you want to minimize that. So you hire a guy, a white guy, straight guy who's 30 years old, you're probably not going to get sued, right? What about a 55-year-old uh, black lesbian? Right. Are you going to hire that person? I mean, that's a lawsuit waiting to happen. Right. I mean, a black so that you could be sued because of racial discrimination. She's a woman. So you could be sued for gender discrimination. She's 55. You get age based discrimination. Now she's a lesbian. Now she could you could get sued because she discriminated based on sexual orientation. And, you know, you better make sure that the person you hire doesn't have a handicap on top? What if they're in a wheelchair? What if they're blind? That's another reason that you could be sued. So the government basically takes all these people, right, that they want to protect from discrimination, who in a free market, there would be no discrimination. But now they have given a massive financial incentive not to hire them. So now the guy that just hires, you know, 30-year-old white men, he actually has a lower cost of business than the person who's hiring, hiring blacks or women or older people or handicapped people because that guy is gonna be tied up in court. That guy is gonna be hit with all sorts of lawsuits that the other guy is avoiding. So the government right now rewards you for discriminating. The free market punishes you for discriminating. So if you're punished for doing something, you do less of it. If you're rewarded for doing something, you do more of it. So paradoxically, we end up having more discrimination because the government makes it illegal to discriminate. That's what happens. Now, I know people say, well, Peter, you think discrimination is okay?" I don't think it's okay. I just recognize that there'll be less of it if we don't outlaw it. Now, I also think that people have a moral right to discriminate if they want. If people want to make dumb decisions based on race, they're able to do that. I mean, fine. They're not going to succeed in life. They're not going to succeed in business. Right. So let people be dumb right? I mean, I'm going to hire the best people. If somebody else wants to hire based on irrelevant considerations, I'll eat their lunch when it comes to competition, right? So realize that life isn't fair and people have rights, meaning they have a right to do bad things, just like you have freedom of speech, right? I don't believe in socialism, but I believe that people want to protest and say we want socialism. They have a right to say things that I disagree with. They also have a right to do things that I think are wrong. If they want to dis- if they want to discriminate. That's their right, right? I I can't change their behavior. Just like I said earlier, people want to do drugs. That's their right. People want to use prostitutes. That's their right, right? Whether you think it's wrong or not, people can make their own decisions whether you agree with them or not. Because the minute you want to impose your morality on somebody else, that's when they can impose their morality on you. See, a lot of people are very cavalier about outlawing things that other people are doing until it's turned around against them. Right. Because once you give the government the power to tell people what they can and cannot do, if initially it's used to prohibit things that you're in favor of, eventually they use it to prohibit things that that, that you want, that you want to do, not that you're against. Right. You don't want to give the government the power. Right. Because whatever power you give the government to use against somebody else, now the government can turn around and use it against you. So if you don't want the power used against you, then don't give it to the government in the first place. And so just allow the market to fix it. And again, that is why. The reason that we have all these problems today in the black community that we didn't have 100 years ago is not because we're more racist. It's because all these laws didn't exist 100 years ago. All the government rules and regulations that are really responsible for the problem, we didn't have them back then. So the problems didn't exist back then. They exist now. So the other thing, you know, apart from Uh, getting rid of equal pay for equal work, uh, apart from getting rid of anti-discrimination laws, they could get rid of the minimum wage. Of course, the minimum wage, no brainer, right? I mean, one of the reasons that young black inner city kids can't get jobs is because the minimum wage has priced them out of the job ladder. They can't get a job, it's illegal. The only thing they can do is drugs because it doesn't matter that that's illegal, right? So get rid of the minimum wage law, let young people get jobs and get skills right a lot more young people will be able to get jobs and that means when they're older you let 16 17 18 year old kids get a job any job i don't care how low the pay is when you get your first job it's the experience that's more important than the money anyway if you make anything that's gravy get the job especially when you're still living at home you don't even have any expenses right you have no rent you don't have you know uh, you don't have a wife to support you don't have any kids you just need money for dates or whatever you know clothes cell phone bill Get a job, get experience. So if we get minimum, minimum wage, we have more job opportunities, more opportunities for people to get experience, more opportunities for people to develop their skills. So that when they're 30s, they can be making a lot of money. They can afford to buy a house. They can afford to support a family, right? You get the skills and you you you, you become a higher earner before you do the other stuff, right? You don't just you know get married and have kids and then claim that you can't support yourself on a minimum wage job. No, you don't have kids while you're still making minimum wage <laughs> or less. You wait until you've earned enough, you've learned enough, and you've become valuable enough, and then you go out and you, and you enter into those more expensive commitments when you can afford them. You don't take them on sooner. And one of the reasons that people take them on sooner is because of the welfare state. That is the other problem. We are incentivizing people early on uh, not to work uh, with welfare, in particular, um, the aid to Uh, women with children, right? One of the reasons that so many black men are committing crimes is because they grew up without a father, right? And I know there's a lot of feminists out there that want to downplay the role or significance of fathers. Fathers are important, particularly in raising boys, not as much with girls. I mean, I think they're important, but they are more important in raising boys, not just as a, a role model, But as an authoritarian figure, if you want to raise law abiding, respectful men who respect law and who respect other women, you need a man in the household. That's a better chance of doing it. Not a woman. She's not going to be able to control a teenage boy. A father figure is going to be able to do that much better. And, you know, you didn't have that. Right. uh, Blacks were growing up in intact families 100 years ago. Not today, in fact, if you look back 100 years ago, the uh, percentage of black children that grew up in homes without a father was almost the same as whites. There was really no difference. In fact, I think it might have been even less. I think black families might have been even more cohesive than, than whites. But let's say it was about the same. Now you have this huge difference uh, between the illegitimacy rates in, in black and white families. It's why? The same thing unemployment. The unemployment rate 100 years ago for black teenagers, was about the same as white teenagers. Now there's a huge difference. It's not racism that is responsible for the difference. It's the welfare state. It's the minimum wage. It's all the other things that the government has done to destroy those black families and to make sure that young black males are growing up without any fathers. And then they have all of these different rules and regulations that make it so much harder for them to succeed. Another one is occupational licensing laws. We should get rid of all of these occupational licensing laws. Uh, at least, you know, for the occupations that don't really need laws or licenses. I mean, I, I um used an example earlier about a florist, right? I mean, I mean what, what's the worst thing a bad florist is going to do, right, is give you a bad floral arrangement? Big deal. But, you know, in order to be a florist, to arrange flowers, you need a license. The government has to license you. Why? I mean, supposedly it's to protect the public from a bad floral arrangement. I don't need protection from that. I go to a florist. I don't like his flowers. I don't go there again. It's competition for reputation and repeat business. That's the only protection I need. I don't need some government to certify that somebody knows how to arrange flowers. I mean, I'll find that out. I mean, worst case scenario, he I buy one, you know, flower basket from him. Oh, gee, I just lost 40 bucks. That was a mistake. I'm not going there again. Right? Or I just go to Yelp or one of these places. I mean, how long is a guy a guy really doesn't know what he's doing? He's terrible florists. How long is he gonna have customers? He had all these negative reviews. Nobody's gonna go there. We don't need occupational licensing laws because they disproportionately impact minorities or African Americans. Because now it's it raises the barrier of entry to occupations. Right? Look at look at uh, uh barbers, right? You need you have to go to school, you gotta get certified. Why not? I mean, look, my wife. My wife's been cutting my mother's hair. She's cutting her own hair. I actually haven't had her cut my hair yet. I haven't had haircut cut in almost three months. But I think my wife has cut my, my, uh, my mother's hair twice. She's done a pretty good job and she's dying it. I mean, she's, she didn't go to school for that. She's just doing that. Why should you have to go to school to cut somebody's hair, right? A lot of African-Americans could be out cutting hair if, if they didn't have to get licensed. Why do you need to be licensed? What is the big deal? What is the worst thing that can happen? You go in and get a haircut. The guy doesn't know what they're doing. You get a lousy haircut. Hair grows back. It's no big deal. We don't need the government to protect us from bad haircuts. Hey, they happen. Oh, I got a bad haircut. Not going back there anymore, right? And if you're a barber, you own a barbershop, you hire somebody that's giving bad haircuts, you fire them. Simple, right? And so you have a lot of people in inner cities that could just become hairdressers, but they haven't been able to qualify. They haven't been able to get a license. They didn't go to school. They didn't do all the training. And, you know, there's a lot of irrelevant tests. I've heard that, like, one of the uh, questions on an exam, right, in order to become a a, a a barber, and I'm not sure if this is still a question, but I remember when I read about it a long time ago, but there was in a question. You had to name the 50 bones in the human hand, right? You had to know all 50 bones. I mean, first of all, how many people even know that there's 50 bones, right? But you have to memorize these 50 bones. Now, maybe there are some people that could actually cut hair pretty well, but they can't memorize the 50 bones in the human hand. So now they can't become a barber. But who gives a damn? You think I've ever quizzed a barber? I go to get my hair cut. I say, by the way, can you name the 50 bones in the human hand? Oh, you can't do that? I need a different barber. Who the hell cares about that? What difference does it make? See, here's the idea. Here's the reality, right? All these people who control government, right? It's the barber's who are already in business that benefit from occupational licensing, not the public, right? The people who already are in the business, you see what generally happened or how, you know, this is the roots of these occupational licensing laws. Um, But let's say there's a bunch of barbers and they kind of came together and they performed, they, 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 they formed a society of barbers, right? And they say, Hey, let's all form a society. And when you're in our society, we'll have various criteria and then when you're a member, you can put this, you know, like seal out on your barbershop that says, "Hey, you're a member of uh, Barber Society of America." And then so new customers who've not, you know, like they've never had a haircut, they don't know, they don't have a friend that they can ask. They'll see that seal of approval and they'll know that you meet certain standards of this organization, right? So the organizations come together as a way for the members to, you know, assure the public of a, a certain quality of service, right? And now you create some kind of value to being a member of that society. Well, then what happens is the society itself says, hey, you know what? What if we made it illegal for people to be barbers unless they were a member of this society? Whoa, then we can reduce competition, right? If we can require barbers to be a member of our society in order to cut hair, we can dramatically reduce the supply of barbers, and then we could jack up our prices. So we can all make more money if we force people to join our organization. The only problem is in a free market, you can't force anybody to join anything. People will only join if they think it's to their economic advantage. See, that's when government comes in. See, now these guys raise some money and they go to a local politician and they say, hey, we want you to pass this law that says in order to cut hair in this town, you have to be a member of this society, right? Oh, why should I do that? Well, because I'm giving you all this money, right? And you pass this law. We're going to keep giving you money. We're going to support you in your election. Right. You just have to pass this law uh, to to require barbers to be a member of this organization. Now, when the politician is going to propose the legislation, he doesn't propose it. Hey, this is a a bill that's designed to allow barbers to make more money. Right. This is the the Barber Income Maximization Act. No, they're never going to label it that. They're not going to be the truth. They're going to call it the haircut, the consuming Protection Act, right? We're, th- this is about protecting the public. We want to make sure that when you get a haircut, the guy that's cutting your hair is a certified barber and he knows what he's doing because you know otherwise you're everyone's going to get lousy haircuts. We need the government to make sure that only competent, qualified people who have college degrees or two years of that, all this stuff, all these other criteria that you need in order to become a barber. And so this guild is successful in bribing some politician under the guise of protecting the public, to pass a law to limit competition so they can charge more money. That's really what happens. Now, who suffers, right? The people who want to be barbers, who can't, who now don't have the education, don't have the money to go to barber school or whatever it is, or don't know all the bones in the human hand. And a lot of this is disproportionately African Americans. So get rid of all these occupational licensing laws and let the free market separate the good actors from the bad actors, right? Now you could say maybe in certain occupations where, hey, I I, I wanna, I want if I go to a heart surgeon, you know, I mean, I want to make sure he knows what he's doing because he could kill me, right? You're not gonna die from a bad haircut, right? I mean, you, you may be embarrassed, so you wear a hat for a while and your hair will grow back. But if somebody kills you on the operating table, okay. So I, you know, you can make an argument potentially that there are certain occupations that can be licensed, but florists. Barbers, it's ridiculous, right? So get rid of those laws. So my point is there's all sorts of things that government has actually done over the years that are creating the economic problems that people are correctly pointing to, right? All the Black Lives Matter people, right? When they point to these problems, the problems are real, but they have nothing to do with racism. And they have everything to do with government laws, government regulation, the welfare state, The war on drugs. There are all sorts of things that are actually being done that can be undone, right? There's a lot that we could do to actually solve these problems. But what we're doing now, throwing more money at these organizations, more government money, bigger government, right, to supposedly stamp out a non existent problem, is not the solution. It's a way to ignore the real cause of the problem, while you're pretending to care and pretending to do something, you're doing nothing. And in the meantime, the actual problems are getting worse, right? And then all you can do is say, well, despite all of our best efforts, there must be even more racism now than there was before. And so, you know what? You need to send even more money to these organizations. We need even more government programs. We need even higher taxes. We need reparations, whatever. It's always going to be more government because there's always going to be more racism. But racism is not the problem. And until we acknowledge that that's not the problem and go after the actual problem, the problem gets worse. But again, as I've said, these race baiters, these organizations, they don't want to stamp out the problem. They want to use the supposed racism out there and all the the, the racism is the big boogeyman. They want to use that systemic threat to, 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 to advance their agenda. So they need to make sure it's still there. Right. So if they can't scare everybody into believing that racism is the reason for all these problems, then they can't keep raising money. They can't keep expanding their leftist agenda. So they don't want to eradicate racism. They actually want to blow it out of proportion and they want to use it for their own political purposes. Anyway, that's it for today. I'll be back on Friday. Again, remember, we're going to get the uh, government non-farm payroll number uh, so we could have uh, a bigger reaction to that number than we got to the ADP number today. (music)